now the Cowboys game is going on. <laughs> well, hi. Hi, everybody. Welcome. My name is Melissa Say. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm back in New York tonight. Um, and uh, yeah, what a treat. What a, what a beautiful pleasure to get to be together um, and get to carry this message. Um, so if you're new and you don't know me, um, I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state, right? This uh, food addiction that I had. And um, at my top weight, at the worst of my time in this disease, I had reached over 300 pounds. I was living in, um, it felt like a nightmare. It just felt like a nightmare because I knew exactly what I was supposed to do. And I did not have the power to do the thing that I knew what I was supposed to do. And it was just, and it just um, plagued me. It was just, it was awful because I would make attempts and I would have periods where I could put the food down or I could seem to manage and control it where I could. And basically for me, it was where I could lose enough weight so I would feel okay. And then something would happen called life. It was really basically called life, you know? And I would pick right back up again and and I couldn't stop myself from doing it. And um, and so my life was spent always on a diet, losing and regaining. And then every time I regained, I gained more. I regained plus, right? Um, and it just got worse and worse over time. And so that at the very end of this disease where it really had me, it's, it, food was my master. It, it, it just, it robbed me of everything. That's what it felt like. Um, and thank God that there is a solution, right? So tonight we're going to delve right into step one. Um, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. So I'm going to read it from the AA 12 and 12. Um, and that our lives, that we were powerless over alcohol that our lives had become unmanageable and for us food right excess food or food and my life becomes unmanageable nobody wants to admit complete defeat i'm looking right in the aa 12 and 12 it says nobody wants to admit complete defeat every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness so you know, when I read that, there's two things that I've already found out. One is that nobody wants to be in this predicament, right? So hearing you just don't want this enough, oftentimes it's not the truth, right? Because nobody wants this. Um, you know, nobody uh, that I know ever, you know, was a little boy or a little girl who said, you know what, when I grow up, I want to have a major food addiction where I um, am enslaved to Ben and Jerry's, right? I want to spend all my extra money buying excess food and maybe throwing it up and then going back and buying it again. Like that, right? Anyone here had that goal as a little kid? Like I didn't have that goal. Um, so it wasn't a choice, right? And the other thing is that my natural instincts are problematic. Right, I've got a problem with natural instincts. And um, 
you know, so addicts cannot live with their instincts running them around. In another way, um, it sort of shows that we're different from other people. And all throughout the big book and the AA 12 and 12, we're told something pretty important that we're distinct, that we're different, we're a distinct entity. Um, and so the rest of the world can rely on their instincts. They can rely on their instincts to keep them safe, right? Instincts are self-preserving, right? The things that we do instinctively are the things that keep us alive, that preserve our life. Like, you know, and so here's some of our instincts. We've got um, the instinct for self-preservation. We've got sexual instincts. We've got social instincts. So, you know, the self-preservation instinct preserving our lives, basic things like hunger, thirst, sleep, et cetera. And most of us arrive in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous because we cannot live in ways that are life preserving. So in my own human power, when I'm running around being in charge of me, I can actually kill myself from overeating food, right? So the natural instinct to feed my body doesn't seem to work or the opposite. Some people starve themselves to death, right? So the instinct to take in the right amount of food doesn't seem to work. Um, and basically what I say is like animals, like in the zoo <laughs> have better self-preserving instincts than an addict does. Um, you know, the, um, the sexual instinct, the natural desire to have sexual relations, which keep our human species alive. And this disease often actually destroys that too, right? It destroys um, not only for many women, it, it harms our reproductive systems, even knowing that our reproductive systems are possibly being harmed doesn't seem to stop people from continuing, um, you know, manipulating your body weight or having your body weight fluctuate can cause um, problems to our ability to, to have children and our, our sexual lives as well. And we run from extremes, one extreme to the other, you know, either like I know for me um, in the grip of my addiction, um, food was my lover. Food was everything. I really didn't want anyone touching me. I really didn't want, I didn't really want to hang with my husband so much. I really just wanted the food. Um, you know, or we hear about people, addicts who have insatiable libido. Like it seems like we don't have that in its rightful um, measures either. And social instincts, like what does it mean to have social instincts? Well, it's the human connections we need human connections we need in order to live as social creatures. You know, different, different from snakes and spiders. Like there are many animals, I used to say cats, but someone corrected me and said, ah, cats might be more social than you think. So I don't use cats as my illustration. Um, but many animals, right? They don't have a social instinct, right? They, they like right from the get-go, they live independently, but people are not like that except in the throes of my addiction, right? Everybody understands what it means to draw the blinds, right? Take the phone off the hook, 
don't respond, right? Go into seclusion, the lone wolf, and eat, right? Um, we're not designed to live in isolation, right? Yet in order for me to pursue the food the way that I needed to, I avoid social opportunities. That's what I did. Or when suffering, like in a social setting, I have been in a room surrounded by people and it was like nobody existed. I could barely hear them right? Because it like drives, drowns out that social connection, you know? And that was whether I was um, in the midst of a binge, right? I would push people away or afterwards feeling so lousy about myself. I don't want to be with anybody. I felt terrible about myself. And um, okay, so here we go. No wonder why we can't rely on our instincts. Our instincts don't seem to work not the self-preservation, not the sexual, not the social, you know, and in the 12 and 12 step four, you know, it actually, uh, I was, yeah, on page 44, it says, alcoholics especially should be able to see that instincts run wild is the underlying cause of the destructive drinking. So here we're told again, our instincts run wild. They're not in their proper alignment. In fact, the big book tells us that it's only when I'm halfway through the ninth step that we will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. And if you're able to call upon your intuition, it means that you can rely on your instincts, that your instincts are working. So until then, it's pretty clear I'm not going to be doing things that are, that are um, instinctive to me. Like none of these steps felt instinctive in the beginning. It felt very awkward. It felt strange. It didn't feel, you know, it didn't just didn't feel like it was supposed to feel. Um, and further goes on to say in step one that we have warped our minds into such an obsession for destructive drinking that only an act of providence can remove it from us. Okay, I, I think we need to take that in. I think that's something that's often missed when people talk about step one. Because sometimes I hear, and I heard it for a long time, well, why are you talking about God in step one? Why should you pray? Why should you meditate? Why should you be like looking for a higher power in step one? Isn't that like not until later? Well. No, because step one actually tells me that only an act of providence can remove this problem from us. So step one tells me right away that my only chance, I got one shot at getting well, and it's going to be having the care and guidance of God. That's it. Care and guidance of God. So I need something divine. And it's only an act of God that can remove my obsession. So a food plan free of all my alcoholic foods might be important. It's not gonna remove the problem. Doesn't remove the problem. That's not an act of providence. That's a good food plan. Uh, an amazing sponsor. 
Well, yeah, good sponsorship is important, but a good sponsor cannot remove the desire. It's a human power source, can't do it. An awesome meeting, right? Full of support, full of friendship, full of fellowship. Excellent, yep, we need it. That's not gonna be enough either. That's not an act of providence. It's really clear right in the beginning that my only shot is a miracle. That's it, an act of providence, right? And I would say, what does that look like? It means that I need an intervention. You know, you ever see the, the show? I saw it recently on TV. They have a show called Intervention where everybody gathers around and they're gonna intervene. And I know people have had that, have had that happen where people intervene, the family comes together to perform an intervention to get the family member help. And that's awesome, that's great. But for me, the only thing that's gonna really keep that help intact is God is in the middle of that intervention. God is in that room separating me from the food. That's it. And so if I am a woman that needs a miracle, that's what I say. I am, I am a woman that must have a miracle and must have a miraculous experience well, if I find that out in step one, that the requirement for me is going to be a miracle, then in step one, I need to start seeking a miracle. I need to start doing everything that somebody who requires a miracle is willing to do, right? You can't wait, can't wait. Prayer has to begin right away. That's what this tells me. Um, and I think about people who, um, who throw themselves like at the foot of a miracle, right? They throw themselves at the feet of the promise of a miracle. They don't put this seeking miracle thing through the test of their intellect. They don't. They do anything because, my God, I need a miracle. And, and here we go. We've got 12 steps that we can follow, that we can actually experience a miracle. And I think we're pretty, pretty blessed to have that. That everybody, we're promised, every single person who does these steps thoroughly and completely can have a miracle. Pretty powerful. All right, no other kind of bankruptcy is like this one. This particular type of bankruptcy. Alcohol now becomes the rapacious creditor. Leads us of all self-sufficiency and all will to resist its demands. Once this stark fact is accepted, our bankruptcy as going human concerns is complete. So when you're bankrupt, right? you're completely in debt to another, right? You're, you're like everything, you don't have anything um, of your own anymore. You owe to something else. And um, what was that for me? What did I owe my entire debt to? I mean, it sounds crazy, but it was to food, right? Food, I'd say food, it's food is the rapacious creditor and rapacious, greedy, evil, 
greedy and evil predator. Think about it. It's like it owns us. Food owns us. It owned me. It was my master. It says alcohol became my master. Food was my master. Leads us of the ability to take care of ourselves. And we can't resist it at all. Couldn't resist it. You know, for me, I think about it. It's like food held the mortgage to my soul. It held the mortgage. It was the mortgage holder. Uh, it robbed me of my ability to take care of myself and I couldn't resist it. Compulsive eating held the mortgage. But I can't resist the demands of this creditor. Couldn't resist its demands because it knows every trick to get me to sign on the line, right? There's like that dotted line in the contract and it knows exactly how to get me to sign it. And it can be strong and hold me down until I sign. Right. I've had that feeling with the food before. Like it's almost like I can't help it. It's it's just calling me and pushing me and I'm gonna eat. Or it can be sweet and subtle and trick me. It's like this isn't a problem. This isn't a problem. This is just, oh, you're fine. You didn't commit your food. Don't worry about it. You don't need to commit it all the time. You're gonna eat the same thing you ate yesterday anyway. Why, why bother? Like that, that for me was sweet and subtle and easy, or it's just, it's just a little bit. It's not really, no, it's not really not abstinent, or it's just carrots. It's okay if it's extra, whatever it is, right? What it is, is it got me to sign the dotted line, whatever way it needed. Um, and I can't resist it when it comes in like that because um, it doesn't look like it's going to harm me, right? So it's really subtle. It looks, uh, you know, it, it, I'd say it's the rapacious creditor that hides the terms in the fine print. I don't see what the fine print is. And it looks, you know, looks like it's healthy. Oh, this is healthy, right? That's the fine print. Um, and I would say that something is subtle. You know, it's like the wolf in sheep's clothing, right? Or it looks like, a. I would say, I heard this before that it's um, like being kicked to death by a bunny rabbit. Well, you know, the bunny rabbit looks so sweet and harmless, right? Who's going to know to be afraid of it? And when you think about, you know, being bankrupt and a greedy creditor, to me, I think it's like this. I owe money on a charge that I charged, I don't know, 10 years ago. And all I can afford to pay is the interest. And it's compounding, right? And, and now I'm paying interest on the interest on the interest on the interest. And that's what it felt like in this disease. It was like, I, 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 I could not get myself out from underneath it. Um, I'm completely in debt. Cannot make the payments. And until, here's the thing with admission, because admission of powerlessness, we're told, is crucial. If you don't admit you're powerless, nothing else can happen, right? And here's what it looks like. The debt keeps accumulating until you throw up your hands and you say, I can't make the payment, intervene on me. Okay, now you're bankrupt. Got it, now you're bankrupt. Interest stops, right? Payment stops. And now you can begin to repay and rebuild, right? at some point. And I think it's like this for this disease. Um, 
you know, and, and really for years, if I could just kind of get the creditors off my back, if I could just sort of take off a little bit of weight before the vacation, it wouldn't feel like such a problem, right? I thought I could do the job alone with this disease. I really did as it usually, and for most people, it usually has to reach a pretty visible spot with the most, with like, with the most horrific consequences. And for me, it was morbid obesity. And it wasn't just morbid obesity, because by the way, I've been morbidly obese many times and would lose it and regain it. And then for the last number of years, um, I was morbidly obese. And, um, but I needed to have some serious complications on top of it, right? Um, I had, um, I had shared, I had broken my foot in um, the throes of my addiction because I was on a um, exercise kick and I was gonna take off some weight and I had been taking off some weight, I was doing well and I hurt my foot. And I went to the doctor and the doctor said to me, um, he took me to, I went to a specialist and they said, basically I was running on a treadmill with plantar fasciitis, I've got really flat feet and I was over 300 pounds and I had it on a steep incline. The steepest incline you could do because you burn more calories that way. And that was, that's where, that's where I was gonna like pay off this debt, right? I'm gonna pay off this debt. And I'm running on the treadmill and I hurt my foot. And so I went to the doctor and the doctor, you know, I went to a specialist and the specialist said, look, you're really in, your foot's in a really precarious situation right now. I'm going to give you some cortisone injections. You got to stay off your foot. It's going to feel better, but you got to stay off your foot. You can't, don't get on that treadmill. That treadmill is not your friend, especially now your foot's got to heal. Don't get on the treadmill. And I was cautioned not only to not get on the treadmill, but never, ever, ever go on a treadmill again with this with an incline. Not for you, not for me. I was told not the kind of walking you should be doing. Um, what did I do? Did not follow the directions. I'll tell you that my foot felt better, and I ate. I overate, and I knew how much calories I had consumed, and I had to run it off. And I did because my foot felt better. I did exactly, exactly what the doctor told me not to do. And I broke my foot, right? That's where this disease takes me. Like humiliating to go back to the doctor. And he, and he was like, what happened? Didn't, didn't, didn't it heal? I'm, I, he's like, I, I, I it, you know, he was like amazed that my foot broke and I had to tell him Cause he was like, I think we need to like, you know, I don't know. He was looking to do some sort of like run some sort of tests on me. Maybe something is like really seriously wrong. And I had to tell him, he looked at me like I was an idiot. Like, because, you know, addicts aren't necessarily stupid, right? It wasn't that I did not know right from wrong. It's not like I didn't have direction. It's not like I'm not intelligent, but when you're in that predicament, when you're owned by the food, you cannot act in ways that respect your own knowledge. That's what it means to be powerless. Not that you lack information, but you can't act in ways that respect what you know. That's what it looks like for me. And at that point, you know, I was like 
one, one step closer to admitting defeat, right? It, it, in completely in debt. And for most of us, it requires a lot of humiliation to get there. I wish, you know, I wish that for many of you, you can reach your own level of pain and humiliation before it's that painful and that humiliating. Um, I'm not really sure, right? Some of us, it requires the eviction notice on the door before you're willing to admit that you're bankrupt, right? Um, so we perceive, it says that only through utter defeat we'll be able to take our first steps towards liberation and strength. Admitting personal powerlessness is the firm bedrock upon which happy and purposeful lives may be built. So if you look up the definition, I like definitions. If you look up the definition of bankrupt, of bedrock, bedrock is the unbroken solid rock at the bottom layer that lies underneath generally the soil, right? And it's the lowest stratum, it's the lowest point upon which all things are gonna be built upon. It's that firm, it's that bedrock, right? And it, it's the foundation. So I just think like there's so many things in, in the text that don't seem to make sense. And here's one, right? My recovery, my entire recovery is gonna be bent, is gonna be built upon the 100% understanding that I am broken, right? Like I have to, I have to completely admit that underneath it all, underneath this entire foundation that I'm gonna be building, what's mine is broken. The piece that's me is not intact, powerless, I'm broken. And I'm not fixable, that's it. And that's why I need an act of providence because underneath everything, this whole entire structure is broken me. I'm at the bottom of this whole structure, right? And it just doesn't make sense that if you think that my entire recovery is gonna be built upon something, you would hope that it would be built upon something that's powerful and strong, right? And that I would need to be, I would need to somehow, I always thought that I'm going to be able to get better because you can do it, right? I, how many, you know, how many of you were given those pep talks? You can do anything you put your mind to it. You are strong. You are capable. You are able. You can do great things, right? Mm, no, wrong. <laughs> not if you have what I have, not going to work, right? Um, you know, and so, so much in our recovery is counterintuitive. It just does not make sense. It's a paradox. It, it paradox, it defies logic. The 12 steps do not make sense. If you're going to try to figure out these 12 steps and try to make sense of it, good luck. It, it doesn't make sense. It does not make sense that I do these 12 things and now I don't want to eat. And that just makes no sense. How it is that I could take certain actions and the desire gets removed. But it does, right? Um, it doesn't make sense. And why it's crucial that we're powerless 
is because then we know that we're going to need to seek something that has more power. And that's what gives us that power, higher power, our relationship with God is going to give us happy and purposeful lives. And that's why I need to know it. It further goes on to say that I cannot be happy. I won't even have real happiness until I accept my devastating weakness and all its consequences. So I have to, my, I'm gonna be happy when I really know that I'm devastated. That doesn't seem to make sense either, right? Um, and, you know, if you join away and you don't admit and accept your devastating weakness, then no good will come, or at least little good will come. And you're not going to be that happy. That's what it says. And you're not really going to be happy. And I've been at meetings like that where people sit around. They're not happy. They're not happy. Um, they complain. They've got a lot to say. They're in a lot of pain. They're consistently talking about how to get out of the food. How do you, how do you, how do you stay abstinent in a wedding? How do you stay abstinent at a, you know, at a, at a vacation? How do you stay? It's like, um, and then when they lose their abstinence, it's, uh, you know, I'm so upset. I lost my abstinence. My husband's an idiot. That's what you hear like week after, right? Week after week after week. Um, and so what I would say is oftentimes they hadn't admitted and accepted their devastating weakness, right? And no good's gonna come. Little good's gonna come. You know, um, and I know this because it's something that I've experienced. I have no enduring strength until we first admit complete defeat. And it says that's the main taboo. And our whole society in this program sprung and flowered from this taproot. You know, a taproot is a large, central, dominant root. It's the main root from which other roots sprout laterally. They sprout off of them. And the other roots that come out of it um, you know, grow and they grow directly, you know, up and the top root, right? This, this other root is underneath the ground and goes sideways and down and it's, and it's the anchor. It's the thing that holds me in place. Our whole society is anchored and held in place around this idea about complete defeat. Most of us come into OA thinking that we're gonna be taught self-confidence. That was what I thought, I'm gonna be taught self-confidence. I really thought that I was going to be taught how to eat or that someone was gonna show me how to have the willpower. You were gonna give me the secret ingredient to willpower, that you had it here. You're gonna tell me how to have willpower in which I was dying for my whole life. Just give me willpower, please give me willpower. And actually, what we're told is that self-confidence is gonna hurt me. Self-confidence is, is, is detrimental here for us. Doesn't mean I can't feel confident in situations, but having entire confidence in me, in self, it's not so good for the addict. 
it's a liability, right? It's a total liability to cling to the idea of willpower, my human power. It's actually going to get in the way. If I hang on to this idea about willpower, it's gonna get in the way of my getting well because I'm gonna think I can do the job on my own. And I'm a victim of a mental obsession so subtly powerful that no human willpower could break it. So I cannot seek stronger willpower, seeking willpower rather than seeking the power, right? Willpower is power in me, but I need to seek higher power, power in the miracle, right? This miraculous intervention. It's seeking the wrong remedy, right? If I'm seeking willpower, I'm looking for the wrong treatment. And over time, what happened for me is that I get more and more sensitive to my allergy. The foods that caused me problems, they're becoming larger problems. It progresses. My disease got stronger, got more cunning, more powerful, more baffling. It's the tyrant alcohol, it says, wielded a double-edged sword over us. So I have this insane urge, this mental obsession that keeps bringing me back to doing something that I am allergic to. And I have an allergy over that I'm not controlling once I start taking it in. I can't win in single-handed combat. And, you know, it says it's a statistical fact that alcoholics almost never recover on their own resources. And I would say it's the same for compulsive overeaters. You know, how many of us have seen people go in and out and in and out, and in and out of the rooms, and in and out, and in and out. And by, by the way, myself included, I have yet to see somebody who goes out and recovers out there on their own, and then comes back to the room a victor, right? And yet that's, that's what I always wanted whenever I left the rooms. What kept me from coming back was the idea that I was going to have to come back with my tail between my legs. And I just wanted to come back victorious. And it's interesting because I heard that story repeated over and over and over again. I heard it countless times, in fact, this weekend alone. And it makes me laugh, like how much, I thought that was like, I thought that was a secret fantasy I had, like that I was going to come back then, right? Um, come back and I got this thing solved. Or I would say, all right, I know I'm out of control right now. Let me just take off maybe like 15 pounds and then I'll come back in. Just, I know I don't have it all together, but let me just take off enough, just enough, so that I don't have to feel quite so humiliated when I come back. And I would say, you know, humiliated or feel ashamed. If you're feeling ashamed, which I think we've all felt that way in the throes of this disease, there's something quite off in your thinking and you really haven't taken a step one. Because ashamed means that you should have already mastered everything. You should have already mastered this problem. And I don't think people who have 
um, diabetes or cancer are ashamed when it has, when it sometimes, you know, awful makes a reoccurrence. They go and get help without the shame because there's an understanding that they didn't cause it and they're not gonna get to be able to cure it. And that's really what it was with this disease. I don't, I don't believe I caused it, or if I did, I didn't intend to. It wasn't what I set out to do. Remember, no kid grows up and you know, growing up and saying, yay, that's what I want to be, right? So I didn't cause it. And if I did, it certainly wasn't deliberate and I can't cure it. I'm not gonna be able to do the job on my own. You know, <clears throat> it goes on to say in, in the AA uh, 12 and 12 that in the early days, only the most desperate cases were able to buy into the notion of powerlessness. And that even the ones that were really in the last stages of the disease still had difficulty realizing how hopeless they actually were. And yet we know is that when they grabbed onto the steps, like the drowning seas life preservers, they consistently got well. So I want to talk about what it would mean to grab hold of a life preserver as if you're drowning, right? If you're drowning and somebody tosses you a life preserver, you don't enter into negotiations with them. You don't start negotiating with the rescuer, especially if they look like they're a damn good swimmer, right? If they look like they're swimming the way that you wanna swim and they look like they're not having any trouble in this water and at one time they could not swim, right? And they're showing you right in plain view of day that they know quite well how to swim. Well, if you're really drowning, you're not gonna start telling them how to rescue you, right? Or what's gonna work for you. Or what I'd say like, what color life jacket you prefer, right? You know, I'd say like, people would throw me the life jacket, the life preserver, and I would say, oh, I don't like the ones that strap between the legs. Those aren't comfortable. I want the one that goes over, you know, over the arms. And it's the same thing with, people looking to help one another, right? Um, someone throws the rescue, you know, throws you the life preserver and you are convinced you're drowning. You grab hold with everything you got and you do what you're directed, right? You do what you're directed. Um, and, you know, um, only the addict vilifies the one that's trying to help them. Says, now I'm sure there are some sponsors that are tough, that are mean, there are some, but I think there's far more cases of addicts like myself who vilified people who were just trying to help me, right? You know, but here we go, it says, all right, so we don't necessarily have to be at like the crazy, what looks like, horrible end of the road. It says here, we found that over time that even the less desperate cases, the ones who still had their health, family, jobs, et cetera, began to see that they were alcoholic. There are many people in OA who never had to get to 300 pounds. Like I share that piece with you to give you hope that if I could recover, so could you, but you don't have to wait to get to 300 pounds. Your disease does not have to progress quite that way. You know, um, I have a, you know, a friend who's required surgery, 
right? To, to repair their esophagus because of bulimia, right? If you're a bulimic, you don't have to wait until it gets that far. When I, what I've heard about your bottom is as soon as you stop digging, when you're going to hit your bottom, when you put the shovel down, right? When you accept help. Um, so how do you admit? Why should you admit that you're, you know, powerless? And, and why should we be concerned about people who um, don't need to quite get that far? Well, we have to be concerned because our mission is to help others. So I want to be able to help people as soon as possible. I don't want to have to wait wait, let, wait, let me wait people out until they're in worse shape. I don't want to have anybody need to wait as long as I have to wait. That would be cool, right? So how, how then do we convince people that they're powerless before they lose everything, before the eviction notice is on the door? How do, how do you let people, how do you help people? Well, it says here, we raise the bottom for them. We raise the bottom a bit and we go back we do this by going back into our own drinking histories. We tell them our stories. We show them the fatal progression by identifying where it started in our lives. We tell them the earlier stories. Hopefully they can relate into one of those earlier ones and, and then they can latch on there. And what we say is, you know, um, if they're still doubting, we don't try to convince them. We are never to convince anybody that they're a compulsive overeater. And what we say is, okay, go try some more controlled eating. And this is something that we're often told in the rooms. If you don't know, if you're one of us, if you're not sure, go diagnose yourself. Go try some controlled eating. Go over to the refrigerator. Try to eat and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. If that's something you know that I've heard many times in meetings, and it's, you know, what we call collecting the data. Go collect your data. It's part of the experimental process. If somebody's not convinced, they might need to, you know, to try some more eating. So how we help others is we share our experience and we plant the seed. We plant the seed for people, right? And once the seed is planted, here's what happens. The binges are never quite as enjoyable again. We ruin the binge for the people. You know, we don't do the convincing. It says John Barleycorn himself becomes the best advocate. So for us, it's the food that does the convincing. You know, um, the food has to show us that we're done. And I think for me, the, the best way that it happened was the food lost the ability to get me the effect. I couldn't, I couldn't get numb. I couldn't get where one time the fatal progression for me was at one time it tasted good. It, it felt good. And then it moved from fun to necessity, right? It went from what was fun to what I needed. And then it was my master, right? And so what it looks like is I, at one time, I fit the binging into my life. And then I fit my life into the binging. And then my life was the binging, right? And that was the fatal progression. Um, you know, we need to have the bedrock of our powerlessness and the taproot of our weakness. 
because we're going to be asked to do things like, why do I have to have that? Because we're going to be asked to do things that we don't want to do. I need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have no other options left. It is then that we are convinced that we have no other choices left that we can choose to go through with the rest of the 11 steps. The steps will require rigorous honesty, being unbelievably tolerant of others, searching out our flaws, making restitution, seeking God through praying and meditating, giving up our free time and leisure to help others. And this is pretty drastic. It's a drastic plan. And unless convinced, nobody will be prepared to go through with it. We do it because we become certain that if we don't, then we're going to be miserable, right? And for me, it was that I was going to die a miserable death. Taking step one is a step that must, you know, we hear a lot about um, progress, not perfection. The only step that I'm told I must do perfectly is step one. I must, nothing else is going to, nothing else is going to grow on it. Taking step one daily and perfectly keeps us open-minded and willing to do anything else that's required. So, um, and I would say, you know, the one thing I really, I want to end with is um, all the steps have promises in them. And I was told once, except for step one, step one doesn't have a promise, but there is a promise of step one. If you only take step one, or if you fail to take step one, here's the promise, you're gonna eat again, right? You will eat again. And so for me, um, it is a step that I take repeatedly, day after day, right? So that I am always enthusiastic about the remaining 11 steps. And with that, I'll pass.